2: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Hi, friends. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I'm Liv, your devoted myth nerd. And I'm just sitting here on a Friday night, Black Friday to be exact, because I don't have any other time to record this. It's been a long day and I've got a lovely glass of wine, so join me for this one, won't you? Now, you may have been expecting a different episode today. I know that I mentioned that we'd be starting into the Oresteia, but I realized it was probably a good idea to take a short respite from the heavier myths I've been covering as of late. If you follow me on Twitter, you got a bit of a warning about this, but I'm going to be taking a couple episodes pause in the chronological series we've been going through to bring us back to the roots of this podcast. It's been a while since we focused, simply, on the lunacy of the gods and heroes. I did, of course, cover Hades and the underworld for Halloween, but, you know, that's still about death and stuff, so isn't the lightest of topics. Not that, really, many of the gods' stories are, but that's not the point here. We'll head back into the Oresteia shortly, and I will say that while it is a heavy story, it is wildly entertaining, and the plays surrounding it are some of my favorites of all of Greek mythology and drama. And shortly after that, the chronology leads us into the Odyssey, which is not even remotely like its brother, the Iliad. The Odyssey is exciting and funny and totally crazy, so don't think that delving into it will be a repeat of the Trojan War. It will absolutely not be. But for now, let's head back into the madness of the OG Greek myths. This is episode 42, Poseidon and his sea of awful behavior. The god and ruler of the sea, Poseidon. Neptune, the Romans called him. He rules the seas and water sources generally. He's the god of earthquakes and horses. Poseidon, earth shaker. There's another divinity associated with the sea, Pontus, who's the son of Gaia and has no father. Gaia could create children by herself, which is just generally awesome. Though, interestingly, Pontus is essentially the sea itself rather than a god who rules over it. But this isn't about Pontus. This episode is about Poseidon, one of the most well-known Greek gods, and yet kind of a mystery in the mythology itself. Even the ancient Greeks didn't understand everything that existed under the sea. Under the sea. Poseidon is one of the original gods, a son of Cronus and Rhea, brother to Zeus and Hades, Hestia, Hera, and Demeter. The story I told at the beginning of this podcast, how the world began and how the Olympians came to rule over the other gods, where it was only Zeus that survives being eaten by his father Cronus, that is not the only version of the origin of these gods. There is another, where Cronus ate all of the original generation of gods, the children of Rhea, trying to prevent himself from being overthrown by his offspring, except for Zeus and also Poseidon a version where Rhea hid Poseidon in a flock of sheep, convincing Cronus that she had, in fact, given birth to a colt, and feeding the cute baby horse to him instead. Cronus does not seem to be the brightest of Titans in either story. He's no Helios, am I right? <laughs> Once Cronus and the Titans who sided with him were defeated by the first generation of gods, Everything was, as you remember from me saying it in countless other episodes, divided up between the three brothers. The women, of course, received nothing, because women don't get responsibilities like rulership. What are you talking about? In some versions, it's even said that the boys drew lots, deciding who would rule over where, with Earth remaining as a kind of neutral locale where they all held an equal amount of sway. And so I tell you, for the zillionth time... It was decided that Zeus would rule over the sky, Hades the underworld, and Poseidon the sea. Our man Poseidon jumps straight into his new position as god of the sea. The first step is to build himself an enormous underwater palace off the coast of Egi in Euboea, though it's really spelled AG, but I googled, so we're saying Aegee, though some refer to his palace as being named Aegee itself. If the gods have anything in common, it's a sense of entitlement, a competition between them, and a love for ruining women. In this case, Poseidon desperately needs a palace that will rival Mount Olympus, Of course, he's more than welcome up there, but being the god of the sea, he does spend most of his time amongst the fishies and many, many other sea deities. Poseidon's position as god of horses also means that horses are inextricably linked to him. It's possible this stems from some of the earliest civilizations on the Greek mainland. He was their god of horses and possibly was only later associated with the sea. Also, it's said that the crests of waves can look like a stampede of horses, and so that too links Poseidon with his many positions in the mythological hierarchy. Poseidon's palace has extensive underwater stables to house his horses, because obviously as god of horses, he has to have a collection of stunning white horses that pull his chariot. The horses have golden manes that match the golden chariot they pull Poseidon around in. He's a little showy, you see. But this also means that Poseidon is the father of some famous horses, or, in cases, transforms himself into one, much like Zeus did in order to trick women into sex or straight kidnapping. They are brothers, after all. When Poseidon rides in his chariot with his white and golden horses, pulling it regally, Storms calm immediately, and around the chariot his various sea monsters rise up from the depths and playfully splash around, a sight I desperately, desperately wish I could see. I'm picturing enormous tentacles with suction cups the size of a car, splashing around like children in a pool. It sounds adorable. In addition to horses, dolphins are also very much a symbol of Poseidon and are very important symbols in ancient Greece more broadly. They're depicted in art and mosaics in some of the oldest Greek ruins found. On Crete, there are some fucking unreal mosaics of dolphins from the Bronze Age. There are also some pretty incredible sculptures of Poseidon valiantly holding his trident, looking intense, with happy little dolphins leaping by his side. But even when he's perfected his underwater palace and he's labeled himself as god of horses and guy who likes hanging out with dolphins, Poseidon is missing, the one thing these ruling gods must have, even though they will treat the commitment like it doesn't matter in the slightest. Poseidon needs a wife. Zeus has a wife, Hades has one, what about Poseidon? So, he goes looking for that lucky lady he'll force into marriage. So, Poseidon needs a wife. And obviously, he wants a wife who will be comfortable with the fact that she will need to spend most of her time at the bottom of the ocean. Somewhat unexpectedly nice of him to consider her opinion on the matter, but he does. So he first goes to seek the Nereid Thetis. See, Poseidon is pretty into Thetis. She's hot and she's a Nereid, so Lord knows she likes the ocean. But it's prophesied by Themis that the son of Thetis will be greater than his father. Lord knows Poseidon is not interested in a future like that, so he's immediately turned off by Thetis and leaves her be. She will, of course, go on to be forced to marry Peleus and will later have his son Achilles. Achilles is, without a doubt, better than his father, even if he has just a hint flawed himself. Moving on, Poseidon goes to his second choice nereid, Amphitrite. Amphitrite is the name of a lighthouse on my island, in Euclid, one of the most beautiful coastlines in North America. Given I live in Western Canada, we don't have a lot of other things named after Greek mythology, so I'm pretty attached to the existence of this lighthouse. Poseidon approaches the nereid Amphitrite, though it's unclear if he suggests marriage straight up or is maybe trying to date her first. Given he's a brother of Zeus, I'm assuming it is a very ungraceful approach to the former. But Amphitrite is not having it. Oh, that's my cat in the background. She has zero interest in Poseidon and is actually pretty grossed out by his come on. Surprising. Wishing desperately that she could get away from Poseidon's advances, Amphitrite runs away to the mountains to escape. But he does not give up that easily, and he sends a messenger after her to try to plead his case. Poseidon sends a messenger by the name of Delphinus to chase after Amphitrite and try to convince her to take Poseidon up on his offer of marriage. Delphinus, apparently, makes such a good case that Amphitrite agrees to marry Poseidon, That's what's said in the Robert Graves. However, in my mythology course in university, I explicitly recall our prof referring to this marriage as rape. Like, she just wouldn't give in, and finally Poseidon stops giving her the option of saying no. Incredibly romantic. Delphinus, though, is rewarded for how well he makes Poseidon's case. In this telling of the story, at least. And for his efforts, he's placed in the stars as the constellation the Dolphin. (laughs) So Poseidon and Amphitrite are married, and she becomes the goddess of the sea. They have three children together Triton, Rhode, and Benthelisis. I don't know that I can say that word. Benthessis. Benthessis. That might be it. But like his brother, and at times even rivaling him, Poseidon is not a particularly faithful husband. And like his father, Triton is a particularly vile god, and not the jovial, though at times strict, father we all think we know. Though similarly to the king of Atlantica, and father to Aquata, Andrina, Arista, Atina, Adela, Alana, and Ariel, Triton is a merman. Possibly the OG merman. He has the top half of a man, and the bottom half of a fish. Sexy as fuck. Now I say all that based, it would seem, simply on comments made by the aforementioned mythology prof from university. I explicitly remember her commenting on how awful and rapey Triton was. She was a great prof, obviously. However, I can't seem to find anything about him in any of my sources or even online. The most that's said about this man is that he's a merman, half-fish, and that he is often shown with a conch shell or blowing on the conch shell like a horn, it said that he used this shell to calm or raise the waves. Still, I stand by that he was probably awful and rapey because I trust my awesome mythology prof, but also, it's a pretty safe assumption when it comes to the gods of ancient Greece. I mean, who of them wasn't awful and rapey?
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
2: at purdueglobal.edu.
3: Not to be outdone by his brother, Zeus, Poseidon finds many ways of straying outside of his marriage to Amphitrite. And he too has many children with many different mothers. And so, I shall cover Poseidon's troubling escapades... Similarly to the way I did with his brother. First up, Tiro. You'll recall the name Salmonius from last week's mini myth. After the horror committed by Sisyphus on Salmonius's daughter, the man proves himself to be equally troubling. Salmonius founded his city, naming it Salmonia on the banks of the river Anipius. After the city is founded and Salmonius finds himself a king, His ego gets the better of him, and quickly. Salmonius begins offending Zeus. He changes things so that all sacrifices and worship of Zeus actually take place in the temples dedicated to Salmonius himself. Later, he begins dragging metal objects behind his chariot in order to make himself appear as though he rivals Zeus. The clanging of the bronze behind the chariot sounds like Zeus's own thunderbolts. It doesn't take much more of this before Zeus has enough. He hurls his true thunderbolts down onto Salmonius, killing him immediately. Unfortunately, the fire caused by his lightning not only burns up Salmonius and his chariot, but also the entire city of Salmonia. So, Salmonius's daughter, Tyro, is left to her own devices. She doesn't have any children because she killed the two she had with Sisyphus. They're a lovely father-daughter combo, you see. So Tiro begins spending much of her time on the banks of the river Inippius. All rivers like this have gods for them, and so Inippius has one by the same name. Tiro spending so much time there, she falls in love with Inippius. Inippius, though, just isn't into her. He appreciates that she's sad and lonely, and he's flattered that she likes him, but he just doesn't feel the same way. Poseidon, though, sees an opportunity. He transforms himself into Anipas, and he tells Tiro that he's changed his mind, and he's now super into her. He asks her to meet him where the two rivers meet, and she does. When she arrives, Poseidon puts her into a magical sleep and creates an enormous wave, high enough to cover the pair from any prying eyes. Under the wave, and while she has essentially been drugged, Poseidon rapes her. When she wakes up, she realizes what has just happened, and Poseidon laughs. Laughs. Ah, the trauma of others. So funny! Ha ha. Poseidon tells Tiro to go home and not tell anyone what's just happened. He tells her that he'll give her a gift. Twins! And they'll have a father who's far more impressive than any old river god. Ah yes, children from a man you had no interest in. Such a gift. These twins are Peleus and Nellius. Peleus, not Peleus, the father of Achilles, is best known for his role in the lives of Jason and Medea during the quest for the Golden Fleece. And Nellius, well, Nellius is his brother. Next, Alope. In another case of classic Greek god behavior, Poseidon seduces the daughter of the Arcadian king, Curseon. Her name is Alope. Curseon, her father, is the son of Hephaestus, though some say he's actually the son of Poseidon himself, making Alope his granddaughter disturbing, but perhaps not surprising. In this instance of creepitude, Poseidon seduces the girl in the form of a kingfisher. Yes, the type of small bird. So, you know, is seduction the right word? Probably not. As with almost all acts of this nature, Alope becomes pregnant. But when she has the child, she orders him to be exposed on a mountain. You remember exposure. It's been a while since we've covered someone who's suffered attempted exposure, but as you'll likely recall, the child never dies. Instead, it's a plot device used to allow the parent or guardian to believe the child has died, so that they can come back at the most inopportune moment. So, Alope orders the child to be exposed. And that's a cat coming in the cat door. Shortly after, a shepherd comes upon the baby who is being suckled by a mare. You know, typical horse behavior. The shepherd takes the baby with him, and the child is noticed by another shepherd due to his fancy clothes. It seems the baby is dressed in his Sunday best before he was left to die. This other shepherd offers to take the baby and raise him but he wants to make sure the baby comes with the fancy clothes. The two shepherds begin to argue. It's unclear whether they're arguing over who will have the privilege of raising this abandoned baby or who gets the fancy clothes on said baby. Regardless, the argument gets so heated that the two shepherds are brought before the king. Curseon sees this baby in his fancy clothes and immediately recognizes the fabric. It's been cut from one of his own daughter's robes. He knows what this means, and eventually it's confirmed by Allope's nurse, who had helped her try to expose the baby. With this proof, Curseon orders his daughter to be imprisoned, where she eventually dies, and the baby to be exposed again. Seriously, if they're so into killing babies, they really need to be more direct about it, because of course the baby doesn't die. One of the shepherds finds the baby, once again, being suckled by a mare. This is clearly an indication of the baby's father, though it doesn't seem anyone actually gets that. The shepherd takes the baby for his own, raising him and naming him Hippothous, or hippothune. It means swift riding. The prefix hippo refers to various horse-related things, as hippos means horse and in confirming this information, I learned that the word hippopotamus is derived from the ancient Greek meaning horse of the river, so you're fucking welcome for that. Ah, Poseidon, just like his brother, ruining lives left, right, and center, all in the name of a little hanky-panky. Third, a mimone. Another story of Poseidon and a woman paints him as quite the hero. Questionable, I know. Danius and his daughters, the Danaids, are living in Argolis, which is, by that time, plagued by drought. The drought has been caused by the unhappiness of Poseidon. It's been judged by the river gods that the region could not be his, but must remain Hera's. There's a whole series of locations that Poseidon tries to take over. He's on a bit of a power grab, but none are working out for him. In this case, the decision is made by an impartial panel of river gods, and even they wouldn't rule in Poseidon's favor, so he causes a drought. During the drought, Danius sends his daughters out looking for water. Danius tells them that they are to find water by making Poseidon happy, and they are to do it in whatever way necessary. While one of these daughters, a is out looking for water and trying to come up with a way to make Poseidon happy, she's attacked by a satyr. Satyrs are always trying to rape women they come upon, usually nymphs, and this guy is no different. The satyr is stopped, though, when a trident flies at him. The satyr dodges out of the way, and the trident instead becomes stuck in a rock. But nonetheless, the satyr stops chasing a It's Poseidon. He had heard Aemimene calling out to him and has come to help. Feeling infinitely grateful and possibly a little horny, Aemimene thanks Poseidon in the only way she can think of. They have sex, and Poseidon is so thrilled by the sex that he tells Aemimene to remove his trident from the rock. And when she does, water begins pouring from the rock. That's right. That spring, called a after this very successful outing, provides water for Lerna and never dries up. Fourth, a name we know well, Demeter. Yet another instance of Poseidon's tendency to take after his brother is a story featuring Poseidon's own sister, the Olympian goddess Demeter. You'll recall back in the episode where I told you about Demeter and Persephone and the rape and kidnapping of Persephone by Hades, that there was a long time where Demeter wandered, aimlessly, tragically, in search of her beloved daughter. She doesn't know, then, that Persephone is in the underworld with her husband, Hades. During Demeter's wanderings, she transforms herself into a mare, The life of a goddess in Greek mythology means if you're not interested in having sex with any random old god, you need to work really hard to keep that from happening. In this case, Demeter is so distraught about her daughter that she's absolutely not interested in having sex, and so to prevent any funny business, she has to transform herself into this horse. As the mare, she grazes happily with a herd of horses owned by a son of Apollo. There's one god, though, who isn't deceived by Demeter's transformation. It is, obviously, Poseidon. Obvious because, well, this entire episode is about him, and I led with a note about their dalliance, but also because he's the god of horses. Poseidon transforms himself into a horse, and as a horse, rapes Demeter. From that act, the nymph Despoena and a wild horse named Arion are born. Demeter is so disgusted and, rightfully, furious that in the region where this occurs, she is still worshipped as Demeter the Fury, which is, frankly, badass. Last, but obviously not least, due to sheer WTF-edness, Iphimedia is the daughter of a man named Triops. She falls in love with Poseidon from afar. Perhaps he visits her. Perhaps she falls in love with the idea of him. Either way, Iphimediah is in love, and she's convinced she can find a way to be with Poseidon. One day, she comes up with a plan. Iphimedia goes down to the beach, and she stands in the water, feeling it lapping against her ankles and, finally, feeling closer to Poseidon than she ever has before. Then, she kneels down in the water. She begins... She begins scooping the seawater up and into... Into her... Lap. Yeah. She begins scooping the water into her lap. She continues on like this for some time... Until she becomes, yeah, that's right, you guessed it, she becomes pregnant. If Iphimedia becomes pregnant with Poseidon's children, and twins, from scooping ocean water. Scooping it into her lap. She eventually gives birth to Otis and Ephialtes, but they deserve their own story. Finally, as a bonus, Poseidon also has many children that cannot easily be referred to as children, per se. It's also said that the Cyclops Polyphemus is the son of Poseidon by a nymph named Thousa. This is, of course, in contradiction with the origin story of the Cyclops that I gave you at the beginning of this podcast, but such is life. Polyphemus is notably the son of Poseidon because of certain happenings that will take place with a certain main man of mine in the near future of this podcast. And we all remember the story I told a few months ago. I know you all remember it because it's one of my most downloaded episodes, so thank you for that. In that episode, I cover the tragedy of Medusa and of Arachne, both at the hands of Athena. Athena. If you haven't listened to that episode, please do. Medusa is raped by Poseidon in a temple to Athena. Athena is so infuriated that she takes her anger out, not on the rapist, but on the victim. She transforms Medusa into what we know of her today, what she's so famous for. A woman who will turn you into stone with a single look. Medusa is eventually killed by Perseus in his quest, and... From the stump of her severed neck springs Pegasus, the most famous flying horse, and Chrysior, just a guy. Both are the sons of Poseidon, but are, very weirdly, not able to be born until Medusa's head is cut off. Mythology, am I right? Next week, Pegasus and the real guy who rode him. Dear friends, thank you all for listening. As I mentioned at the top, I wanted to bring us back to the roots of this podcast. I've also gotten so many requests to cover Poseidon, so there you have him. As I mentioned, next full-length episode we will cover another standalone myth, and then I'll be taking off Christmas and New Year's when it comes to full-length episodes, but I'll still release some mini-myths or something like that to tide you all over. In the new year, we'll be back, and I'll delve into the story of Agamemnon's return home from the war. It's one of my favorite stories and my favorite plays. And after that, it's into the Odyssey. But something I learned from covering the Trojan War is that we'll break it up a little bit. There will be some standalones thrown in, and of course we'll do mini-myths in the off-weeks. The Odyssey, though, shouldn't at all be considered to be as battle-heavy or dry as the Iliad. The Odyssey has everything you want from Greek myths, and more. It is my favorite piece of ancient Greek literature, and I can't wait to share it all with you. And I can't wait to share it from Emily Wilson's translation, which is the first translation by a woman. As usual, I would love if you would rate and review this podcast on iTunes. The more five-star ratings, the more people find this podcast. And I want to share the madness of Greek mythology with everyone. Please also follow me on the various social medias Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, in all those places, I'm Myths Baby. Thank you all for your support. I'm Liv and I love this shit.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.